The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 62 of The Things We All Carry. Today I'm joined again by Christy of Sweary Therapy. This is her third episode and she's becoming somewhat of a regular on the show. Her previous episodes are numbers 15 and 30. Christy's a licensed mental health therapist in the state of Florida. She isn't your typical staid and starched therapist. She's coming at you with blue, pink, or multicolored hair and she is unafraid to match your firehouse language. Christy stands out from the get-go and she's a challenge to the status quo. The thing is, she has the knowledge to back it up. The easiest way to describe Christy is reading directly from her website, and I quote, As your therapist, I promise to always be authentic and genuine, and for me, that might include dropping those F-bombs and getting into the real shit with my clients. I want you to know that you can and should express yourself authentically with me, and if that includes colorful language, great. If that's not your style, no worries, as long as you know you are free to express yourself however you are comfortable. End quote. Her tagline is simple and to the point. It's just fucking therapy. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Good Saturday morning. This is a third episode with Christy from Sweary Therapy, and it's been a while. It's been a long while, actually, and I kind of regret that it's been as long as it as it is. So what I want to do is I want to let her kind of reintroduce herself. Maybe some of you haven't listened to episodes one and two with her and give, let her give some of her background and um, kind of why she's adept at dealing with some of uh, some, some of the issues that we go through as, as first responders and, and, you know, kind of victims of... And, I don't hate the word victims, but experiences of trauma and um, PTS. So uh, I'll let you take the mic and, and kind of go with it for right now. And then we'll get into kind of talking about what we wanted to finish from our list we created. So how are you this morning? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. It's just a lot of fun. I enjoyed our first two conversations. So I'm looking forward to today. So like you said, I'm a sweary therapist. So my practice, my private practice is sweary therapy. And my name's Christy, and I'm a licensed mental health counselor. Um, I work with individuals of all different backgrounds um, to help them, you know, grow emotionally, deepen their self-awareness, you know, learn to have that self-love and all that pokey-pokey stuff and live more grounded in the present moment. And my biggest thing is helping people do that authentically. So, I mean, that's kind of what Swery Therapy is sort of born out of that drive and that need. And that desire for that authentic connection. I don't know about you, but I know in my past, like going to a therapist and sitting in an office and dressed in business casual and feeling like I couldn't talk the way that I wanted to talk and kind of express myself the way that was comfortable for me really drove me to try to create that space as a therapist for myself. So, I mean, I'm showing up with blue and green and purple hair. I've got tattoos. I say fuck a lot. I swear I have a dark sense of humor, you know, and, and it allows my particular batch clientele, you know, the kinds of folks that like 
to express themselves in those ways to feel more comfortable and to feel like they can actually talk about the things the way that they experience them rather than trying to censor that so we can create a more genuine connection. Because at the end of the day, the most important thing in the therapy room really is that connection between you and your therapist, that therapeutic alliance. I, I work from a mindfulness-based perspective, so I help people really get to know what's going on internally. And I'm trauma-informed, I'm EMDR-trained, so I understand how trauma affects the body and the brain and our behavior and how it stays with us. You're, you know, the body keeps score and all that good stuff. And trying to help people just become aware of how that is happening in their body and then try to make sense of it so that they can move from a place of reacting to their life to a place where they can be aware of what's going on and choose responses so that they can live a life that's more in alignment with who they feel that they are and their values. Does that cover everything? I can give more background if you want, but that, that's who I am. Well, yeah, let's, <laughs> let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about your background a little bit. Because um, you, you did share on, on the, I think, the first episode, you kind of shared what, what your own experience with trauma was. And, and we don't have to get into it too deeply, but maybe you want to mention it just, you know, that you're coming from a, a spot of experience. Sure. And, you know, I think that that's really important to a lot of people to know that their therapist is a real person and goes through stuff too. You know, um, the little, little caveat is like, I don't have to go through everything someone else has gone through to be able to understand because I come from a client-centered perspective. So I'm always going to think that my clients are the expert in them and whatever they tell me is what they're really going through. So my own personal experiences, um, you know, we all have our childhood shit, right? So like everyone's coming with some baggage from, from growing up. Um, but more recently, my youngest sister, she was, uh, actually, um, for probably a good 10, 15 years, she was a drug addict. So she struggled with addiction and substance abuse. And there was all sorts of messed up stuff that really went along with that. And then in beginning of 2020, prior to the whole COVID thing, she actually had moved into a place, um, because she'd gotten in trouble with drugs and all this other stuff, she couldn't rent like a traditional apartment. So she had to rent from, you know, a less traditional place. Ended up having a roommate that had a babysitter who ended up um, murdering my sister. So there was that whole drama and trauma about dealing with her going missing and then having to deal with all of that. And the court case hasn't even started yet. It's been years. So, you know, realizing and going through my own experience of, of that kind of loss um, really refined and refocused my kind of, uh, perspective and the way that I work with trauma and my clients going forward. And I feel like I was pretty well informed going into my own experience, which probably helps me not go off the rails. If I hadn't have been a counselor already, I think that I probably would not have handled it as well as I did, if that makes a lot of sense. So I think kind of growing up with my sister and watching her go through everything that she went through really kind of put me on the path towards kind of understanding trauma and addiction and mental health struggles. And then going through this stuff at the, you know, these last few years has really kind of solidified, like, I'm doing the right work. This is where I'm supposed to be. This all makes more sense. And, and now that I have that understanding, I feel like I'm a more um, well-rounded therapist, if that makes sense. No, it definitely makes sense. Uh, it, it gives you a, a perspective that some therapists, and not all, of course, but some therapists just don't have. Yeah. Okay. So let's yeah. let's talk a little bit about the mindfulness piece of your practice. 
how do how do you use that and 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 how do your clients use it so like my whole understanding of mindfulness is that the more you can be mindful it's like the m word in my house i swear I, my kid is like if you say mindfulness <laughs> one more time um if we can be more mindful, which but what I mean by that is being kind of grounded in that present moment, aware of what's going on internally, then we can, for lack of a better term, make better decisions. We can choose how we want to behave in a situation that is in alignment with our values and who we truly believe and are capable of being, right? And so... A lot of people think when they're practicing mindfulness or they're meditating, they have to clear their mind. And that's just bullshit, right? Like nobody can make their brain stop thinking. You can't make your body stop feeling. It just doesn't work that way. What mindfulness practices do is allow you to become aware of what's there so that you can make choices rather than kind of being subject to the whims of your nervous system. If, if that, hopefully that makes sense. And so it's it's not about changing specifically what's going on in your brain and your body and your heart, but more about learning, uh, building the muscle of attentional control, if that makes sense. Like I can choose where I'm going to put my attention and what I'm going to um, give credit to and what I'm going to say, you know what, not today. I'm not I'm not following that anxiety spiral down into, you know, that pit of despair. I'm, it's not the same as ignoring either. It's it's I'm not giving that as much weight. I like to use the analogy with my clients that like when we're practicing mindfulness, it's like being in the train station. While I'm focusing on my activity of focus, let's say I'm doing a breathing, I'm focusing on my breathing, I'm focusing on body scanner, I'm staring at a candle, whatever it is. That's like me being in the train station. And all the thoughts and all the feelings and all the bodily sensations are going on are like trains running through that train station. I might find myself on a train, you know, like a train of thought, right? So I get stuck on this train and I'm like, oh, I didn't mean to get on this train. I'm going to redirect back to the train station and I can mentally teleport back to the train station. And I might find myself doing that back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I can acknowledge all of those trains. And as soon as I realize I've gotten on one, I'm coming back to the station. My husband also teaches meditation. And he would call that doing one rep of meditation, one out and one back. You're building that mindfulness muscle. It's the fact that you noticed that you were on that train and came back, that was you practicing mindfulness. That was you choosing where to put your attention. And that over time becomes like a superpower of being able to stay calm in a certain kind of situation, which I know a lot of like first responders, you guys are really good at that in certain situations, but then in your private lives, you know, that doesn't always work out, right? So being able to be mindful kind of gives you that power across more domains the ability to choose how you want to respond to something. Because that's really the only thing we can control in life. I can't control what you do, what happens in life, but I can control how I deal with everything. So that's that's kind of like the basis of my understanding of mindfulness. And I can get way more into this if you want, but we'll just start there. <laughs> so I, I love the train station analogy because it, it gives you such a visual of, all right, I started out on a track, but this track's not taking yeah. me where I want to go. So- right. You turn and get the fuck back. Yeah, basically, you know, I tell my clients, okay, so in this train station, in this universe, we have the magical ability of teleportation. So you just teleport back to the train station. That's fine. You know, and there doesn't have to be any judgment to go with that. And and people will often say, oh, I was so distracted. I meditated so badly. I'm like, did you do it the whole time? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, then you fucking meditated. Great. That's the whole practice. 
See, I think you know? that's definitely the piece that, that somebody new to the practice and, and I've, I've dabbled at best. Mm-hmm. I've dabbled. I mean, I've, I have downloaded apps. I've used it. I've, I've, I've not stuck with it for any amount of time, but I have had that right. feeling where I say, Jesus Christ, it's, I've, I've went on 30 tangents in two minutes, but then, but then I, then I realized, oh, wait a second. No, I, I came back every time or at least attempted yeah. to come back every time. And, and while I still kind of in that, that new state, you still kind of feel like a failure doing that. It, it's try to, trying to train yourself to say, okay, that's what we need to do. Just come back from it. It's the coming back. Yeah. That's like the completed repetition of the mindfulness practice. I remember when I first started practicing, uh, I got it. My husband got me into this like back in like 2009, 2010, something like that. And we would do these, he's been meditating for a while. We would do these really long sits. And I was like, wow, I'm such a good meditator. I'm so good at this. And what I realized though, is I wasn't actually meditating. I was just disassociating. I was checking the fuck out. I wasn't really present at all. I wasn't grounded. I wasn't aware. I wasn't going through anything. I was just completely dissociated for 30, 40 minutes at a time. When I finally realized that that was different from what mindfulness practice was, because I was under the impression, just like most, a lot of other people are, that you're not supposed to have a lot of thoughts or feelings or any experiences going on internally when you're meditating. And then through different, you know, educational resources, you know, reading books, listening to different teachers, you know, these kinds of things. I learned that that's not what mindfulness is, right? Mindfulness is just being aware of what is. It's not not having any experiences. That's not human. <laughs> the human body is made to have those experiences. You can't make your brain stop. If your brain's not having thoughts, probably you're dissociating or you're really tired or <laughs> like it's really hard not to have thoughts. It's about not, like I said earlier, getting on that tree or not staying on that tree. And the more you practice, the easier it gets to see the trains before you're on them. And that's kind of what the practice is about, is sort of learning to see the trains rather than, you know, when you're first starting, you're like, oh, this is a train. I'm on it. Okay, cool. <laughs> Let me get off this train. Hang on. Right? And we have to sort of like build that ability to be aware. So like, for example, I, I teach people how to draw blood. I, I teach phlebotomy. And when students first come into my classroom and they're trying to feel on the arm of the vein, you know, they're pressing with their finger, what we call palpating, right? You, you know a little bit about this. Some of your first responders will know. And you first, first, first touch someone's arm feeling for a vein. You don't feel shit. Your sensitivity is there. You haven't done it enough, right? You're like, well, it feels like an arm. That's some skin. You know, you can't tell that there's other structures specific underneath that. And the more you do it, the more you touch it, the more refined your sense of awareness grows. And then you're able to touch that arm and feel, oh, that's definitely a vein, that's a tendon, et cetera, et cetera. Mindfulness is very similar. Anybody that's ever played sports, you should have that same sense of when you first sit down with, you know, to go do the thing, you're just like, nope, this sucks. I don't know what this is. And then you develop that feel over time. Mindfulness is no different. Um, And it's just, it's a really subtle shift. And I think the other misconception people have is that you have to sit down and, you know, own for 20, 30, 45 minutes. But honestly, a couple minutes a day will make a huge difference in your life. So I always start my clients out with, let's just breathe for one minute a day. And when that gets easy, let's do two minutes a day. And then we just build from there. Anything you do slow and, you know, start out slow and small, you're going to be more likely to stick with and have be successful later on. So you, you said that, that moment there, that own for however amount of time. <laughs> and, and I think that's the, that's the vision that a lot of people have of meditation, correct? Yeah. I mean, that's what most of my clients come in saying. Well, I mean, I don't know. And then they, they always give me that visual. And I'm like, well, that doesn't have to be it. You know, and we also, 
not to like discount, like that's a great practice. And if you can make time and do that or work up to that, like that's fantastic. But, you know, I want to meet people where they're at. And a lot of people, they're not there. They're not there right now and they're not going to be there for a while. So it's like, I'd rather everybody start getting some benefits than have no benefits with mindfulness. So we can do it for one minute. We can also do mindful activities, like mindful everyday things. Like when you're taking a shower, you can do so mindfully instead of when you're taking a shower, ruin it, you know, ruminating about your whole day that you just had or planning for tomorrow or running through that grocery list or whatever it is you're doing when you're taking a shower instead of being present and grounded in that shower. You can turn that shower to a mindful activity. You can be really, really present in your body. What does it feel like to have the water hit in your body, right? What does it feel like to have the soap on your skin? What does it smell like in the shower? What is the quality of the air as you're breathing it in as it gets more and more humid in the shower? right? And just being really, really present in all of the experiences. You can turn a shower into a mindful activity or brushing your teeth or washing the dishes or a walk or there's a lot of different ways that you can practice mindfulness without, you know, sitting on a cushion, putting your fingers in a silly position and saying, oh, right. Yeah. And so I don't think a lot of people know that though. (laughs) Right. No, I don't think they do. Um, And I, and, and I suppose that not suppose. So the goal here is, is to get it to the point where you're going through everyday life and you don't consciously pick up the fact that you're going down a track. Is that the goal yeah. or am I mistaken? Um, I mean, basically it's about shoot. If I want to get on the stream, I can get on the stream, but it's about being able to make a choice about it. It's it. I look at mindfulness as bringing you a whole menu of choices that you maybe didn't realize you had before. Is that, yeah, that, that makes, no, that makes sense. <laughs> and, and, and to take it back to a train station, I guess it's the destinations is you would have new destinations. Sure. Yeah. Or, you know, are you even meaning to go anywhere? Right. So instead right. of a vacation, a staycation, let's get corny. Why not? Sure. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> let's go down that path. You know, cause how many times do you find yourself, you know, it, all of a sudden you're like, I don't know where this feeling came from. You know, when people tell me like they went from zero to a hundred, all of a sudden I go from being fine and then I'm screaming at my wife. Well, I'm here to tell you that that didn't come out of nowhere. There was absolutely all sorts of signs. You didn't go from zero to 10. You went from zero to one and one to two and two to three. And you worked your way up that scale until you got to a 10. The problem is, is that you're, you're not connected. You're not grounded to your internal experience. And so you're only becoming aware of it once the top blows off. But with mindfulness, you can learn to be more sensitive. Like I was using the phlebotomy, you know, uh, analogy earlier you can become more sensitive with practice. I mean, what would change in your life if instead of noticing you were about to blow at, a, at an eight or a nine, what if you noticed at a four that things were starting to heat up? You know? Yeah. That's and, what mindfulness can bring. And I, I think that when I speak from, you know, recognizing a feeling, for me, it, it comes from the fact of, as an introvert in a, in a firehouse, it, where, yeah. there's, where there's very little escape from the 12 to, to 14 people you work with every day or each shift, there's very little escape. And so for me, I have to recognize that four before it becomes that 10. I, I right. have to, or, or I burn out really quickly in a 24 hour period. Exactly. Yes. So how do you become more aware of that? What are the things that help you tune into what you're experiencing? And for me, the answer to that question is, is some kind of mindfulness practice, something that helps you ground into your body and be aware of these are the things that I'm experiencing. And I say body because you know, we're, we are, our behavior is, if we take like a cognitive behavioral therapy kind of perspective, that CBT definition, 
behavior is a result of our emotions and our thoughts come together, creates behavior. And so if I'm only aware of my thoughts, for example, but I'm not aware of my emotions, you know, we call them feelings because they, we feel them. They happen in our body. And if we're unable to connect with our body and be grounded and know what the fuck my body is experiencing and then what that means, then we're going to be really hard for us to figure out why am I behaving in this way, right? And I think you touched on that very briefly in the past with the whole feel your feelings instead of think your feelings. Right. <laughs> so this kind of moves into that space too. Yeah. And on that, I think that one of the things we had written down was that um, you're not going to fix everything. No. Yeah. You, can, you, you can recognize everything or you can recognize uh, maybe not everything, but you can start to recognize everything. But then coming to, to grips with the fact that you're just not going to fix everything yeah. And, and I don't know, what do you do with that if you don't fix them? Well, you feel them, you know, like, <laughs> it's just not the answer most people want to hear. And, and I think it's interesting because most people don't want to fix happiness. They don't want to fix joy. They don't want to fix excitement. So why are we trying to fix the other side of the emotional spectrum? Why do we have to fix sadness? Why do we have to fix anxiety? Right. Our feelings exist for a reason. And the only way to get through our feelings is to feel our feelings. And I know that sounds like the corniest therapy thing ever, but like, unfortunately, it's totally true. And the science bears it out. So we have to feel our feelings. And the only way to feel your feelings is to actually get into your body and know what it feels like, right? When I'm anxious, I feel all sorts of weird, fluttery sensations in my chest. When I'm mad, I get really hot in my head. My jaw clenches, my fists curl up. When I'm sad, I feel like I have a black hole sucking everything into the center of my body and I get really hunched over. Like these are the bodily experiences that I go through. But if I'm not letting myself acknowledge that and feel that, they're gonna, those feelings kind of get stuck in the body. And that's, that then turns into other problems. Um, I've lost my train of thought when I was gonna say otherwise though. <laughs> Well, where was I going to go? I well, another direction, but so you don't fix to... them. You don't fix them. But <laughs> well, I, yeah. I, I know that we, we discussed the word repurposing. So what does that mean for you? Mm. So I remembered when I wanted to say about okay. fixing, actually. So I'm going to touch base on that real fast. Yep. Like the best example that I can think of when it comes for fixing versus not fixing an emotion is you know, most of us have gone through some kind of loss. You know, someone we loved has died. Right. And that is a really sad event. Is there anything anybody or anything in the world can come do for you that can fix that sadness? Right. That person is gone. Right. You're going to have to be sad about that. And part of the healing through you know, trauma or any kind of big thing is you have to just allow that to exist. Right. And I think this moves into that space of what we can control versus what we can't control. You know, shit things happen sometimes. I can't control that. And so I have to, by feeling my feeling, I'm allowing that to be true. I mean, I'm accepting it in that sense of like, it is what it is. And I can then from there move into a space of then how do I cope with this? How do I move through my life while feeling this feeling? How do I not let this feeling eat me up and strike me down another thing? And then maybe how do I repurpose this so we can move into that? Like I like to take um, like certain kind of, energy that kind of comes from our feelings, right? Like certain kinds of feelings are kind of energetic, like anger, right? When you're angry, you want to get up, you want to take care of something, you want to go. And so we can take that energy that comes from that emotion and hopefully 
channel it into something healthy. A lot of times that's not the case though, right? But if we can be aware, so kind of sticking with the mindfulness theme, if I can be aware that I have all this energy in my body from this emotion, I can then turn it into something that maybe is a healthy release. So maybe I can go for a run. Maybe I can build something. Maybe I can channel that energy into some kind of activism. Maybe I can um, create something and express that in another way instead of getting into a fight or engaging in risky behavior or doing drugs or et cetera, et cetera. Um, does that make sense? It, it does. And I think one of the things you introduced yourself as is you, you have a um, trauma response was one of the words or a set of words, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. and I know that trauma can manifest or the, the responses to trauma manifest in many ways in, in across, across the, across society, basically. Oh yeah. Um, and one of the things you and I talked about earlier before we even started recording was that you'd notice a theme of the guests coming on the show and they, they kind of struggle mm -hmm. the most when, when, when they're actually out there talking the least about what they've experienced. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we go out, we go on a, uh, on a, on a, on a call that's traumatic and it affects you and, and you don't go and you share it with somebody, you don't talk to a therapist, you don't talk to a peer, whatever it is. And you just bottle that up and then you start to notice that you're, you're going downhill, you're decompensating emotionally. And um, mm -hmm. your point is that it is obviously talk about it, get it out and you won't, you won't decompensate it as much at least. Um, right. Hopefully not at all. But what are some <laughs> of the, what are some of these reactions in general to a trauma? Well, so, you know, trauma means a lot of things too, right? So this can be like little things. It can be big things. It can be big events. It can be, it also was shit from our childhood that we never really dealt with, you know, stuff that didn't happen. So in general, you said, you said stuff has, that didn't happen. Yeah. So like if you never received in the, the feeling of safety and security at home, mm -hmm. if you didn't feel loved, which when you're little, if you don't have that sense of my, my primary caregivers have my best interests in mind and they're here to keep me safe. I, Trauma at, at its base definition is anything that makes you feel chronically unsafe. And as a kid, you have no way to know that you're not going to die if your parents stop loving you. Right? Okay. How else are you going to get by in this world? Right. Right. So we have this innate, hardwired desire to be loved and accepted and kept safe by our primary caregivers because when we're little itty bitty creatures, we need that for survival. You literally can't get by without them. So if you don't have that or it's chronically questioned, right? Growing up, that can lead to different kinds of trauma responses. So our body responds to feeling unsafe in basically four, four ways, right? Everyone's heard of fight or flight, but there's fight, flight, freeze, and then people vary what they want to call the other one. I'll just call it fawn because that's the one that I've heard. So fawn is like people-pleasing. Like, let me just do whatever I need to do to smooth this whole situation over so I can stay safe and, and survive, right? Freeze is like shutdown or dissociation. Check out. I don't need to be physic or mentally present for this terrible thing that's about to happen to me. Um, that's often when like, you know, people can't remember the full event. They were, they were there. They were engaging, but they were like totally checked out mentally. They're not present. I mean, fight or flight are pretty much more, you know, self-explanatory. You know, if you have a bear chasing you, you're going to turn around and fight or you're going to run away, right? And we're not making conscious choices. So the thing is about the way that your body responds to trauma, and this is a very big oversimplification, 
but it's sort of like normal everyday functioning. We're using our frontal cortex, you know, that, that part of your brain that has all the executive functioning, planning, goal setting, decision making. You know, when this happens, I'm going to do blank. That's your, that's your prefrontal cortex. When your body senses danger, it's sort of like the control is taken over by your emotional, more like reptilian brain, if you've ever heard it called that way, your primitive brain. And that's like your limbic system, your amygdala. Basically, that part of your brain kicks in the high gear and it just takes over. And so you're no longer in thinking and planning and calm mode. You're in survival. And so your body is going to do what it thinks is the best thing to do in a situation. It's happening below the level of conscious decision. So if your body senses that the best thing to do in this situation is to shut down, that's what you're going to do. If, you, if it senses fight is the best option, that's what you're going to do. And so what that looks like as we grow older, we get further away or we get further away from our trauma, is different kinds of behaviors like people-pleasing, getting really defensive, emotionally numbing, being hyper-vigilant, dissociating, right? And then that can kind of, those, you can probably imagine where you could extrapolate those out to really extreme versions of all those things too, right? So that is a way for your body's trying to protect itself. The problem is, is these things work for a little while, they're, but then they become maladaptive, right? So if when I was a kid, let's say I have trauma from my childhood, people-pleasing worked really good to keep my mom happy. But when I get to be an adult and I'm in the workplace and I have relationships, people-pleasing, I'm just really fucking myself over all over the place, right? But this can also happen with like things that happen to us when we get older. We, a lot of people, you probably are more familiar with the dissociation, the emotional numbness, and the hypervigilance, right? Emotional numbing, if you drink yourself to bed every night, you're probably numbing your emotions. It's better to shut down that way than to feel my feelings. This feels safe, right? I don't want to feel all that scary big stuff. Um, being hypervigilant, kind of on the lookout all the time, can make people irritable, right? Constantly on the lookout for that fight. They almost seem like they're picking a fight. So hopefully, or getting defensive, same thing. Um, these are all ways that your body is trying to keep itself safe. And the problem is, is your brain's goal is just keep you alive. It doesn't really give a fuck if you're happy. And that is where we start to get into trouble. That's why some of these like automatic responses can start to cause us trouble because we're, if we're not being mindful and we're not aware that our body is having this response to try to keep us safe, we then can't do anything about it. As humans, we don't have claws, we don't have fur, we can't fly. But what we can do is think about the way that we think. We have that ability to be aware of our thought patterns and then engage in different practices to sort of override or reprogram our thinking habits and our behavioral habits and how we go through things. And so that's sort of where mindfulness meets trauma is to help you become aware, wow, when X happens and that thing reminds me of this trauma that I've had, or it reminds me of a feeling that I have associated with this trauma that I've had. I can become aware of that feeling and aware of that sensation and engage in behaviors that are different from the ones that my body automatically wants to engage in. Did that track, did I make that all go in order the right way? It, it does. <laughs> I guess what I kind of want to touch on are, you know, you had these four major groups of responses. Mm -hmm. You know, fight or flight, the, the, you know, freeze, fawn, mm -hmm. all of them. Um, and they all make sense. I think that we all, obviously, we all have our different responses to trauma. Mm -hmm. um, I can yeah. tell you that I've, I've probably gone through all four of them at some point in, in mm -hmm. my lifetime. 
And I think the most prevalent one for me is probably freeze. Cause there's times where, where I react to something and, and I just, all of a sudden it'll be weeks and I'm like, I haven't done shit. And it's because mm. it's because I'm, I'm like afraid to take a step forward or just take a step, whatever direction it is. I'm just afraid to, to choose it because it feels like every choice I've made has been wrong or has been, right. I don't know, maybe not wrong, but it has been maybe a misstep in some manner. So, so those all make sense to me, I guess. Um, now do, um, what kind of behaviors manifest themselves from the responses though? So you might have like anxiety about flashbacks or memories or nightmares, right? So we're feeling really worried all the time. And so then that might lead to avoiding those feelings or avoiding any activity or avoiding anything that might remind you of that experience, either the trauma itself or, or even going further to avoid, you, avoid feeling any feeling that might remind you of the trauma, which then reminds you of the nightmare and the, you know what I mean? So it just sort of becomes this really shitty negative feedback loop. Um, depression, right? If we don't really address all of this stuff, we just start feeling shittier and shittier and shittier about ourselves. And so, you know, the symptoms of depression are going to be, you know, losing the ability to find pleasure in activities you normally find enjoyable. Um, it might be literally the inability to get out of bed because facing the day is just too fucking much, right? Um, fatigue and other sleep disorders can also be a common response to trauma. You find yourself having nightmares. That's a really common one. If you're not sleeping because you're having nightmares, that lack of sleep is just going to affect everything, right? Um, and make you feel really tired. And then you've got no energy to deal with just regular life shit, let alone the trauma that you're carrying around. And then there's also like the fear of the event happening again, or the fear of how you responded to the event or the fear of if this thing happens again, then it's going to fuck me up again. And then I'm going to be dealing with it again and all of that sort of stuff. And so we have a lot of different ways that we sort of avoid that. You know, a common one, like to go back to what we mentioned earlier, is the use of like substances to distract or numb those experiences. But also I want to kind of give the, the positive side, not really positive, but what feels positive about substances is that they often make us feel good for a minute, right? We're getting that dopamine release. We're getting those happy juices in our brain. And so it, it, it can, that's obviously where the shit cycle gets into where substance use turns into substance problems, right? Because we're avoiding or numbing and we're trying, we have no other way. We can't figure out another way to get those happy juices in the brain without engaging in some kind of problematic behavior. So you end up with risky other behaviors as well. Um, you know, whether that's kind of doing daredevil shit or engaging in problematic, you know, or risky sex behaviors or things like that, because you're looking for that thrill, which gives you the happy juices, but you're doing that because you're not able to get them other ways because you're dealing with this trauma. You haven't processed it. You don't even recognize that your body's going through some feelings because you're just not tuned in. Does that answer your question? It does. And I, I think that I know that you, you hear it quite often and you can go through the, I don't know, 50 plus episodes that are just with, with guests who have <laughs> experienced traumas and discussed their, their quote unquote downfall and their, 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 you know, their ascendance on the other side. And they'll talk about their, their behaviors that they engaged in. And, and it will mm -hmm. focus on, on drunk driving, um, using, mm -hmm. using illicit drugs, especially in, a, in an occupation where you're obviously not supposed to use you know, illegal <laughs> right. substance. We'll put it that way. And, and I won't get on my, on my soapbox. I'll, I'll save that for another day. But, um, or like you said, uh, risky sexual behavior, um, uh, 
that that yeah. affects a lot of people in the first responder community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so what does it take for you to, to, to sit down with someone and go, hey, l- listen, this is what you're doing, but this is why. And, and to get, I know that's got to be a, a client to client thing to get them to realize why the behavior is attached to something else. Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting because like for for a lot of the clients that I have, you know, they're they're coming to me. So obviously by the time I'm getting a lot of people, they have already recognized that there's a problem. So I think it depends too. Like if you're being told you have to go talk to a therapist so you can go back to work, you might not be as ready as someone that is seeking that out on themselves. So there's there's definitely kind of differences in our state of readiness for change. And there's like a whole theory and on this other stuff, we could talk about that for a whole nother day, but like stages of change. Um, so if someone's sitting in front of me though, if they've come to me, obviously they know something's up. They're not living their best life. <laughs> they know it, but they, a lot of times they yeah. don't always know why they don't understand necessarily what's going on. So for me, the way that I often approach really all my clients, but anybody that I suspect probably has trauma going on is really just from a point of education, first kind of giving them this information. Um, Sometimes I have to be like, just humor me, just try this mindfulness thing out for like a week. And then, you know, let's talk about how that was for you. And if someone actually gives that a go, they will usually be like, I don't really like this because then I notice that I'm mad or I'm sad or I'm angry and I didn't like it. Or, you know, and that's usually my my way in to be like, well, what do you think is going on there? Right, where is that anger coming from? Um, it's, it's one thing to tell somebody like, Hey, look, I see these patterns and I can see that this is where it's coming from. And it's a whole nother thing for them to come to that conclusion on their own. You know, them being able to see it for themselves and know it for themselves, is going to be so much more powerful and useful. So I, I try not to just tell my clients, Hey, you're having a big trauma response to everything. And this all makes perfect sense. It's much better when they can understand how trauma affects their body. And so we'll do that in session, right? And if they come in and they're telling me about a thing from work or they're telling me about the shit that happened in their past. And I'm like, hey, can we pause right there? Let's do a couple of those deep breaths we've practiced, you know? And I want you to tell me what you're noticing. And we just literally, I'll pause them in that moment and ask them to tune in. And when they can't, because a lot of them just can't, they don't know how. That's usually my kind of doorway in to be like, what do you think is going on there? Why can't we connect with this? And I'm like, I don't know. And then, you know, that's a good spot for some education on trauma, on feeling our feelings. And so over time, it's through building that rapport and providing that education, getting them to buy into the small practices of mindfulness. Once you start paying attention, you can't help but start seeing some of these things. And then it's a very much like, oh my gosh, you were right. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I never thought you could be right, you know, and I get a lot of that. I never thought, I never thought, I never looked at it. So it's, I think for me though, the way that I approach that is by being very real and very validating and never making someone feel ashamed for the way that they've been experiencing it, right? Like, this all makes sense. If anybody else, if I'd been through what you've been through, I think I would feel the same way. If I'd been through what you've been through and I found that drinking helped, I would probably be doing the same exact thing. Right. Like really validating and normalizing, like what you're doing has worked and you're, you know, however old you are, it's worked for the last 15 years. Look at this. You survived. Like, let's honor the fact that you figured out a way to get through this, but 
I'm guessing that the way you're getting through that is kind of exhausting. You need like a different way to get through that. I was going to. That's usually the selling point. Yeah, that's what I was going to. That's what I was going to hit on is the yeah what what they've done for the last 15, 20 years, whatever it is, has you know air quotes worked. Right. Um, it's worked to get them to this point, but it has it worked. Right. Exactly. Because I, I mean, I'll speak for myself. It, it, what I did for years didn't work, but it, but it, <laughs> right. but it, but it masked everything else that was going on in my head or in my heart or whatever you want to call it. And, and right. it, it wasn't healthy, you know, just relying on, on, uh, for lack of a better term, negative coping skills wasn't healthy and it affected everything in my life. It affected the way I interacted with the people closest to me in my life. The, it, 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 it affected how. I reacted and interacted with the world in general. And it, and it, and it mm-hmm. you know, we, it got to a point where it was very negative. And so to say it worked, I get what you're saying, but, but yeah, yeah it, but it, it doesn't, doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, 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 right. It, it protects in a manner, but it's going to crash. Right. And that's what we would call it. It went from like the first time you do that behavior and it makes you feel better. It's doing what you went to it for. Right. So it works. It's adaptive that first few times. In a sense, it's adaptive. When it starts having all those negative side effects, like what you were just describing, that was what we would call it be a maladaptive coping skill, right? It's no longer working in the sense that it's actually helping in all of the areas of my life. And so that's usually the selling point. It's like, listen, I understand that that is how you've always done things, but what I'm hearing you say is that that's exhausting and that it's affecting this and it's affecting that and it's affecting this. You know, I use a lot of like, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing you say is this sucks and you want another way to deal with this stuff. You know, I'm, I'm hardly ever wrong by the time I'm making that statement. There's like a bunch of memes on the internet. I'm sure you've seen them too. Like, you know, you're about to get called out when your therapist is like, I might be seeing this wrong, but you know, what I'm, <laughs> what I see is we're wrong. We're, we're not usually wrong <laughs> at that point. You've already told us all the stuff that's uncomfortable and not working about the way that you're coping. Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount, and I appreciate all of you. I have one request, though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. No, of course. That's the frustrating part because I, I, it's, uh, yeah, you're right again. You know, and I, I don't know how many times I've told my therapist she's right. And, and, and you know, and you, you normally just get that look like, I know, you know, and, and, and yeah. it's like, it's annoying, but it's, it's satisfying too, because you're starting to get answers. Exactly. And, and usually by the time, I mean, hopefully by the time someone's saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm seeing is like, we're not like I said earlier, I'm not telling you anything you haven't already said. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take all of these things that you said over the last two or three sessions or over this last hour, and I'm going to give you the paraphrase of that in like two or three sentences in a way that you can hear it, right? You've already told me drinking isn't working for you. You've already told me lashing out at your friends isn't working for you. You've already told me that all of these casual sex relationships you're having are just making you feel worse. Now I'm going to put all that together in just those three sentences Instead of the three hours of talking that you danced around that, those three things, right? And then when I kind of lay it out like that, you know, and then they kind of scratch their chin and I'm like, so maybe it's time for some other, some additional ways to deal with our feelings. And they're like, yeah, these ways suck. These aren't working for me. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's move forward. 
right? And we start looking at those next uh, other ways to cope. But the thing is, is that in between phase, it's real uncomfortable, right? And I, I'm real honest with my clients. Like it is really, really, really uncomfortable when you move from the kind of coping that you've been doing, which probably involves a lot of numbing, to actually sitting with and feeling your feelings and having to allow those shit things to exist in the world again. That sucks. It's not fun. It's not complicated. So it's not like rocket science, but it's not easy either. It's, it's really, really uncomfortable. And so a lot of times we have to start small and build our tolerance up. You literally have to build a tolerance to distress. And this can be really challenging for folks like in your field, because like y'all deal with a lot of distressing stuff all the time. So you're like, I can tolerate all sorts of shit. It's like, yeah, but <laughs> how about those feelings? Like we're going to tolerate those, right? How do we do that in a way that's healthy? And that, that's the tricky part that gets really, you know, individualized too. Like everybody has to kind of go at their own pace on that sort of thing. So. I, I love what you cool. said there. The fact that, okay, so sure. We, we recognize the, these things. We recognize the, I don't know, negative feelings or the negative experiences. It, you don't leave your therapy session and have those just go away. Those are, yeah. those remain and they're going to remain for the rest of your life. And, and whether they're the real ones or the imagined ones that you, that we all create in our own brains, they, yeah. they create some of the worst anxiety you could ever have. They're always going to be there. And so it's, it's, a, it's what I think even for me, I, and I, I kind of got it when I was in therapy or when I'm in therapy, I get it. But then sometimes right. I just have to, man, it's I just have to kick my own ass back into gear because I'm like, yeah. no, dumbass, it, this shit doesn't go away and you still have to right. deal with it. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. I, and I notice it when, um, you know, like for last three weeks or so, I've just said, all right, no, I'm step away from alcohol again. I, not that I got drunk every night. I, I'd have a drink or two, but, but it's just pointless, you know? And so I, right. I stepped away from it again. And, and you start to feel those feelings, like you said, to feel those yeah. feelings. And you're just like, ah, man, it would be so easy not, not necessarily get drunk, but to sit there with a glass in my hand and just kind of sip and relax. But that's yeah. not, that still doesn't solve anything. And it just makes me more tired the next morning. <laughs> right. And so, you know, and I'm not going to tell my clients you can't ever drink or you can't smoke or you can't go have casual sex or you can't go engage in that, you know, crazy ass hobby behavior thing that you like to do, you know, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is make a conscious choice about that. Why are you doing that behavior? Are you doing it because you want to and it's actually enjoyable and it makes you feel good and there's no shit side effects from it? Or are you doing it out of a habit at this point because it's the only way you know to make that shit feeling go away? And right? it's, is there for me, a it, choice? Yeah, for me, it just, it became a placeholder. It's like, okay, it's almost like, um, it's like Linus's blanket, the security blanket. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's automatic. Right. Stuff, exactly. Right? It's like, oh, it's yeah. five o'clock. Man, I need to get, and let me mix that drink up real quick. Right. So you're not even making a choice about it anymore. You're, you're just doing, you're going through the motions. It's just a part of your everyday automatic response to a feeling that you're having. And the thing is, is like, you know, you have one drink every day and it doesn't negatively affect you. You know, who am I? Fine. Cool. Maybe there are, if there's no negative side effect from that one drink that you have at the end of the day, that's fine. But a lot of times by the time you're coming to see me and you've got some major shit, it's probably not just one drink and it probably is affecting your, your life. Right. So if I'm engaging in behavior, but that behavior is causing me to have a 25 other problems, I, I, I. I can do some mental gymnastics, but at the end of the day, I probably know somewhere deep inside that that behavior is not good for me. 
Yeah. You know what and, I mean? and even if those, those side effects are simply, why the fuck did I do that? Why do I have to have a drink? And then for the next three hours before you go to bed, you're like, why did I do it? Why, I, why am I, why am I so weak that I had to have a drink? <laughs> right. Who wants to sit there and beat themselves up for three hours? Right. Well, right. And so, you know, when sometimes clients will be like, oh, well, you know, this is just what I've always done. And, you know, if I've got the right report, I'll be like, well, how's that working for you? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't often want to punch somebody, but my, when my therapist says that I feel like, Oh, I want to reach across and get you on that one. Stop saying it. But I, but obviously that's why I'm going to see her is for her to say that, Hey, dumbass, it's not working. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm just saying like, how is that working for you? And I can't describe it. I'm like, okay, so at what, what point, what needs to change for you to want to do something different? And sometimes when we get to that part, that's where, you know, it gets interesting. Cause it's like, sometimes a client will get to that point and they realize that they've internalized this stuff so much that they don't believe that they deserve to feel better. They don't oh, believe that they're worthy of feeling better. I, I can, I can, thing. I can vouch for that. I mean, I had that, I've had that exact conversation multiple times with my therapist. Like, right. okay, well I've, I, I've done X or I've done Y. And this is just karma. This is just the way that, that life is going to, is supposed to be for me now for the rest of time. Right. And that's a hard, that's a yeah, hard, yeah, that's a hard mindset to escape. Mm -hmm. It is. And what's interesting too, for some people is like, they don't want to acknowledge that like all of your life experiences have led to those kinds of deep seated beliefs. It's usually not just one thing. It can, it can be, I don't want to say that it, it can't be every now and then, you know, that does happen, but it's sort of like, once something happens, we have a tendency to sort of let all of our beliefs sort of support that negative belief about ourselves. So all of our past experiences, we can sort of reframe in our brain as like more evidence for why we suck and more evidence for why we deserve whatever's happening to us. And we engage in behaviors that aren't necessarily healthy, which continue to then reinforce that shit feeling about ourselves. And if we're not being really mindful, then we're probably not engaging in good behaviors with other people, which means our relationships might not be as healthy as they could be, which again are then reinforcing. So you can see like this just starts to become a really big mess over time. It starts to spread out kind of like the ripple effect. It just starts touching more and more and more things, which then reinforce that negative belief. I suck. I'm not worthy. Right. And that, that is a really, really hard one to get to the bottom of. Uh, and there's a lot of different ways that we can do that. Um, you know, EMDR therapists will tell you that's always the way. <laughs> uh, it's one way. Um, I do a lot of parts work with people. I do a lot of like one of my favorite strategies. And I use this one for myself all the time. It's like if I'm feeling a certain kind of way and I've got some sort of story going on in my head with a lot of self-judgment, like oh, I'm so stupid or God, I suck so bad or whatever crap thing I'm telling myself. If I'm practicing my mindfulness and I'm, and I'm kind of checking on myself regularly, I'll eventually catch that thought process. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why am I saying this stuff? What I can do to kind of double check, do I really suck or am I being an asshole to myself? Is I'll ask myself, what would I say if this was a client or a student or one of my friends or my kid or something like that? If they had my, my issue going on and they were saying this exact message to themselves, what would I think? Would I say this to them? If I wouldn't say it to those four people, why the fuck am I saying it to myself? Right. Right. And I can tell myself it's because I deserve it, but I've made a commitment to treat myself as kindly as I treat everybody else. 
And while at first that might feel a little weird, if you do it enough, eventually it starts to feel kind of nice. And then we deal with that process and you gotta, it, it's definitely messed. It's messy. This is not a, a clean, easy, straight path at all. <laughs> so the, the funny part is you keep saying, um, you keep saying things that, that I hear in almost every session of therapy and, and it, I just have to laugh. I just think that you guys have a checklist of, of phrases and, <laughs> and you're like, all right, uh, number number six on the list will fit and, and i know it's not the case it's just that you guys you guys in general have it's it's true because it's the same response that we all give to different right. different experiences well hopefully that drives home the message that you're not alone you are not the only person to feel this way yes your particular situation and circumstances and expression of that are unique we're all different you know we all have an individual approach to kind of dealing with it Trauma is not only happening to you and your inability to process it and deal with it in a healthy way. You are not alone. Our culture is not really do feelings and trauma and mental health really well. I don't know if you've noticed that. So most of us are kind of entering into adulthood in our lives pretty ill-equipped to handle this. And as we learn about trauma and as we learn about the way that people behave, there are a lot of common features. So the fact that what I'm saying resonates with what you're hearing your therapist saying probably resonates with what many of your listeners have probably heard from their therapist or have read, you know, hopefully that will encourage people like your experience while unique to you, you are not alone. You're not the only person going through this. And we understand a lot about trauma and there is a path for you. There's a path to healing for you. So before we wrap up, I want to, mm -hmm. I want to go back to mindfulness and the meditation piece. So cool. Um, what, without giving away the trade secrets or necessarily, or, or stealing, <laughs> st we'll put it this way, instead, before we steal your husband's thunder, since this is what he teaches, um, yeah. what is an easy way for my guys and gals that are listening to get into meditation? How would you suggest they start a practice and what might it look like for, for somebody that has no idea what they're doing? Great question. So there are a bazillion different ways that you can do mindfulness, right? So I would definitely encourage people to be open to just experimentation, right? Try out a bunch of different kinds of styles. And I would say there are so many free resources. There's paid for resources. You can get different apps. You can Google it. You can go on YouTube, you know, and, and you can check out a whole bunch of different things. That's like number one. And I would say if you try something, try it for a few days. Notice what feels good, notice what doesn't, and then try something different until you find the one that doesn't feel gross, <laughs> right? So the way that I usually start people out, we just do simple mindful breathing. So a lot of people have like an Apple watch and it'll have, or, you know, you can go online, you can look up like a breathing gif, you know, those images that just kind of get like a circle that grows bigger and gets smaller and grows bigger and gets smaller and you breathe with it. And you just notice the sensations of breathing. What does it feel like as the air enters your nostrils? What does it feel like as your lungs expand and your belly expand? What does it feel like as your belly contracts and your chest falls? What does it feel like to sit here and breathe? And every single time you notice that you're thinking about the fact that you're doing this stupid meditation, you come back to breathing and you just try to sink into what does that feel like? If I had to describe this, what would I describe it? What is that feeling sensation, right? And then when you get distracted by a feeling, I'm getting anxious or this feels silly, Cool. Just acknowledge that and come back to your breathing, right? Being really gentle with yourself. Like anytime you notice that you're distracted and coming back and set a timer and start small. Do it for one minute. 
And when one minute is easy, after maybe a week, do two minutes. And you, you, nobody can tell me they don't got time for one minute of fucking breathing. You can do it while you're taking a poop. Come on. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I hope you're, I hope you're breathing while you're doing that. So. <laughs> right? So there, there's no, no reason not to try it for a minute a day. And you can literally do it anytime. You know, I have a lot of clients who are parents. They don't have that free time. And I always joke about doing it, you know, in the bathroom. Most people can find quiet time in the bathroom or the shower. So if that's where you can find your quiet time, do that for a minute and just begin to notice. One of the, my favorite things is called a mindful check-in. And I try to get, like once my clients are starting a little familiar with the idea of mindfulness, it's like, okay, why don't we commit to do a mindful check-in two or three times a day? You know, let's say before you get up for your lunch break, take one minute, tune in, do a couple deep breaths, just notice. Just notice what's present in your body. Wow, my shoulders are really tense. I'm feeling a little anxious on my chest. I've got a lot of mental chatter going on. Cool. Just checked in. I just checked in. I didn't change anything. I just checked in. And you make that a habit. Over time, that mental check-in is the basis for your whole mindfulness practice. So that's that's the biggest thing I would say people can do is just check in. And breathe. And, and, and breathe. Breathe is the, you know... You'll hear it. Breathing exercises are fantastic. You know, box breathing or, or timing your your intake and outtake. There's so and, many, yes. Right, and so there's so much you can do with it. And and there's a simple search on, uh, you know, just a simple Google search is going to tell is going to give you some exercises to work with breathing. Absolutely. And just yep. those breathing exercises will bring some some mindfulness anyway. Well, breathing's really great too because it happens right now, right? You can't breathe into the past or the future. It happens in your body, so it's really grounding in that regard. And depending on how you're breathing, you can actually get your nervous system to chill out, right? So I, there's there's actually nerves that go from your brainstem down all the way into your guts, right? So you have like your whole gut brain. And when you breathe real, real deep and you expand your diaphragm with that real nice deep belly breathing or what we will call diaphragmatic breathing, if you want to get all fancy with the terminology, that deep kind of breath that where your belly expands, all of those nerves that go to your brain and your belly are sealing that deep breathing, that slow breathing. And they're sending that information back up to your brain, right? And if your brain is in panic mode, right? We got fight or flight. We're in survival mode. If you're really in danger, your heart's going to be beating fast and your breathing is going to be quick, right? That's what your body does to get you to safety. If you are intentionally slowing down that breath and breathing nice and slow, the way you do when you're safe and calm, Eventually, your brain's going to be like, what the fuck's going on here? Hang on. The messages I'm getting from my body are that everything is fine. My mind was telling me things were not fine, but the body's not responding in that way. Maybe it's time to turn off the alarm system and chill the fuck out for a minute. And so breathing can be a really great way to sort of reset and regulate the nervous system back into a state of calm. So then you can think about what is actually happening? What do I actually need to do right here? What am I actually feeling, doing, seeing, experiencing? And kind of pulling it right back to the beginning where you're talking about you're going down the track and then let's take a U-turn or teleport back to the train station. Back to the train station. Exactly. Yep. Perfect. I mean, full circle. Yeah. Full <laughs> circle. I think that's, that's the spot right there. We'll, we'll end yeah. episode three with Swery <laughs> there. Um, but you know, I'm going to ask you about a book again, right? About what? About a book again. If, what's What have you been reading lately? And what would you suggest? What have I been reading lately? So I actually haven't been reading as much as I would like to be because I've been unbelievably busy. But 
I just started reading Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents by Lindsay Gibson. Um, it's a really interesting book. And I just finished reading The Smell of Rain on Dust by Martin Prechtel, which is um, a really interesting book on grief written from, um, oh my gosh, I forget where he's from, Indigenous Central South America, somewhere in that area. I can't remember which country. Um, really, really great take on grief and loss. Uh, from a, a, a perspective of like praise, which sounds really weird, but it's that's a great book. Um, and adult children, emotionally immature parents. Is, I just started it, but it comes really highly recommended, especially in the world of like trauma and things like that, um, to help people kind of understand why they are the way they are based on how their parents acted, right? And a lot of us have emotionally immature parents, and so I think that that might be. I'm looking forward to finishing this book. It's pretty short. So I just started it. I'm excited. So <laughs> when we were talking and you mentioned the reptilian brain, it brought me back to a book that I finished a, a couple months ago, which I've been meaning to suggest to people. And I can't remember if I did suggest it on the show or not. And I, 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 I apologize if I did, if I'm repeating myself, <laughs> but there's a great book out there and it's called seven and a half lessons about the brain. Seven and a half lessons about the brain. I don't think I've heard of that one. I'm and, looking it up right now. And it takes a new look at the brain, a kind of a new science to the brain where it says, okay, um, it almost takes on the, like, I want to go with the analogy of the, the, the root system in a forest. So mm. everything is it, the, the dendrites and neurons and everything are, are interconnected in some manner. And so you start to, you start to retrain through, through one portion and it, and it starts to spread out everywhere. Uh, and that's, that's a very loose <laughs> interpretation of part of the book. The The book is fascinating because it, it makes you take a, a new look at the brain and where science is headed towards with the brain nowadays. Um, oh, cool. And it, neuroscience stuff. It is. It, it's definitely neuroscience, but it's neuroscience at, uh, at, uh, let's go with a basal level. So it's, it's kind of an easy read. Uh, it's, it's a short book, I think 150, 170 pages, and it's literally seven and a half lessons. So each chapter is a lesson about the brain. And, and, uh, I, I just, I, I found it fascinating and I, I thought other people might enjoy it. So it's, it's enlightening as well. Cool. I just added it to my audible wish list. It's only like a four hour book. So yay. That sounds fun. I love books. They're my favorite. So remind, <laughs> remind my audience where they can find you. And if they happen to be in Florida, where they can find you. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm on www.swearytherapy.com is my website. Uh, I have the same handle on Instagram, you know, at Sweary Therapy. I'm also on Facebook at Sweary Therapy. Um, you can email me at Christy at the Sweary Therapist.com. That information is all on my website. And that link is also available like on my Instagram page as well. Um, I can also be found. I'm the co-host of a podcast and Twitch stream called If the Couch Can Speak. And that is uh, the same name on you know, website, Instagram, and all that good stuff too. Um, and yeah, I offer uh, individual therapy to adults in the state of Florida via telehealth. So anybody's looking for uh, a blue-haired, green-haired, tattooed, sweary person <laughs> to talk about their shit with, come find me. <laughs> awesome. I appreciate it. I, it's been another great conversation. Uh, thank you for being patient with me, and thank you for joining me on a Sunday. 
Absolutely. This is great. I always, I always love talking with you. This is always a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. I realized, I think I misspoke, misspoke when we started the show. I think I said Saturday and, and uh, that's what working, oh, did you? that's what being up in the middle of the night will do to a brain, I guess. <laughs> I didn't notice either, so I don't know what that says about me. Day, I didn't work all night. Days don't mean anything to people on shifts, I guess. I guess not. <laughs> all right, well, go enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and I appreciate it. We'll be back in touch, and we'll find another time to do it. Awesome. All right, good. take care. Thank you. And we're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves, and remember to check in on each other.